You're listening to DraftKings Network. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. All right, I'll say it. If I played in the Little League World Series, I would bat 300. Really? You think so? Dude, you send me to a batting cage right That's now? That's it, though? 300? I feel like you <laughs> it's hit It's not more, that right? impressive, I was say, it's not that nice. I, I thought I didn't want to say, like, you know, something ridiculous. What would, well, so many go, go ridiculous. Go high end. How fast this. are these pitches? Do we know? Like They throw in, like, the mid-60s, some of them, I think. 50s and 60s, which is, like, the equivalent of, like, high 80s, low 90s. From the distance, yeah, because they're only pitching at like forty. Yeah, because yeah, because it's such a, it's such a shorter distance than a major league. It's that's why they always do the equivalent. They show you like he's throwing this hard. It's the equivalent of ninety eight or something. Can I share a myopic Olympic gripe that I have? Yes. No. Now that the Olympics have ended, but yes. we're still on the topic of baseball. Mm-hmm. So I was watching the gold medal game, and it was driving me crazy because it's being broadcast in America. It's it's being it's an American. Broadcast team, it's clearly like, I don't know where it's being produced, but pitch speeds were coming out in kilometers per hour. And I had no idea what the hell was going on. I didn't know how fast pitches were. I didn't know what was happening. Why couldn't we have done the good old MPH? Because the metric system, right? Yeah, but but it's being broadcast here. It's being done by American broadcasters. Why can't they just do the graphics with miles per hour? You myopic American. No, I know. I said that on the front end, but... But yeah, I you're still past that. No, uh, I no. thought the IOC was handling the footage on that one. So. I mean, but come on. Learn Eduardo kilometers. Perez is calling the Learn game. Come kilometers. on, Eddie. Nope. Learn kilometers. That's why they're in your car right now. If you go out to your car, there's kilometers there. Learn them. Yeah, but I wasn't watching in my car. If I was watching my car, I could speed up to get the kilometers per hour the pitch was thrown, and then I could see how fast I was driving. Do you guys ever accidentally change your car thing from miles per hour to kilometers per hour, and then you think you're driving miles per hour, but it's in kilometers per hour? So it feels like you're going really, really fast, but you're actually going pretty slow, and then you're afraid that you're speeding, and then you're like, am I crazy? And then you realize you accidentally changed the setting on your speedometer, and it was... (laughs) Measuring kilometers per hour. There's a lot of steps that goes into that, though, Jessica. My car still has a stick. Yeah, yeah, a stick. Yeah, me yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. And they both yeah. say it at the same time. It's just like yeah. one dial and then another dial under it. Old school. Yeah. What kind of, you know, rocket are you driving? It's like an yeah. old car, too. You drive a Saab, don't you? No. <laughs> I'm not saying it. I'll be judged no matter what Take I out say. Saab? Jesus. I'm just saying. You feel like, you, uh, you know, no, you maybe you have a Saab. I do not have a sob, but there's nothing wrong with a sob. No, nothing at all. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a sob. I'm just saying you drive a sob. I'm not going to lie. You saying you're going to get made fun of. I kind of want to know what you drive now. Audi? Volvo? I drive a Volvo. Volvo. No, you guys haven't guessed it yet. Hmm. And you're never going to. I don't think you've ever even heard of Saturn, so it's not going to be that. It's It's Alfa Romeo. (laughs) Oh. All right, Woody got it. Yes! Okay, there you go. Damn it, Woody. Come on. Welcome to the mystery crate. <laughs> Witty, congratulations. 
Oh, thank you, Chris. I mean, geez, look at this guy. I mean, we were, you're impressive. We're very proud of you, Woody. I'm impressive. Yeah, you are. What makes you say that? I'm just, I'm doing a television broadcast. Oh, look at you downplaying it. <laughs> With Congrats, Ray man. Hudson? How nervous yeah, are you? Yeah, that, see, that's the fun bit. That's the fun bit. I'm actually like, I, I'm, I'm doing like a bit of a film study almost to really figure out how to accommodate myself around Ray Hudson's stylings, right? Because, he, like, I've got to be done with my goal call quickly before he comes with the magisterial. I've got to be ready. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm preparing. I think you got to go in there and do, like, an alpha move with Ray. Be like, Ray, glad to be doing this. We listen. We're going to have to take a yeah. little step back, okay? Been taking some <laughs> notes. Lay out, Ray. I think this is what we're going to have to do here with this broadcast. And uh, just remember, I'm the main guy here. You're just filler. And then see how that goes. Turn it, turn it down a notch. Yeah. On the, uh, on, on the similes and the, tarant the tarantulas down pants. Just yeah, a couple just, notes you know, here, Ray. It, turn it down ah, a notch. Yeah. I, I've, I've, I've learned some things about your study, about your broadcasting style, and I have some notes. Mm -hmm. Chris, I want to I'm apologize to you very quickly. I just want to apologize. Your skin looks great. Oh, thank oh. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> looks great. Listen. I don't think I'm ever getting to great. I was not blessed in the gene pool in this area. So, you know what? I'll, I'll settle for mediocre. Genes are crazy, yeah. right? Genes are a wild thing. <laughs> Biology? Yeah. A lot of washes. Yeah, yeah got, I got so weird when people wear jeans down here because it's so oh. hot out. Yes, I agree. That's why I, I never I'm wear jeans. Right you got your acid you. wash, you got the yeah. white jeans, you, you got black jeans. Face? I mean, there's a lot of them. Mm. Way too hot for jeans. Why don't you turn your head and say that to my face, Jessica? Wow. I mean, that hurts. Way too hot for jeans, Roy. I'm perfectly it comfortable. Is. Denim doesn't breathe well. It doesn't. No, 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 it once doesn't. it gets wet, like the other day when I walked into the ocean, those jeans were wet the rest of the day. Yeah. Terribly uncomfortable. Yeah. You walked into the ocean in, in denim? Yeah, I had denim shorts on, wow. jorts. Oh, wow. Big mistake. Dangerous yep, game. Not doing that again. Woody, we're so proud of you. And I'm sorry yeah. that Dan was so rude to you this week, but it <laughs> seems like it really rolled off your back. Into that, I'm very impressed. Yeah, well, you know, it's something that I've dealt with my whole life. My, I, I, I think I'll be dealing with it my entire life. If you're not going to embrace the things that are wrong with you, then you're 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 going to suffer a lot. So, and around here, you just don't have a choice, so you better accept it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? Is if I, I think one of the mistakes that often gets made on the show is when people like reveal that their vulnerabilities are actually vulnerabilities because then th that scab only gets picked further. Mm. So, uh, I, you know, if I kind of say that this doesn't really bother me, then you know, maybe you'll forget about it. That's what I try with the fat stuff. But uh, yeah. well, no, show me your that, belly button. That doesn't work. <laughs> it's no hiding that, though. Audi. We've not bothered you, though, about uh, your... I feel like you, the, the redness of your hair has not really been a subject matter until very recently. I, oh, I heard wow. the discussion uh, about uh, your arm hair. I, I was out of the studio for that. But I feel like, generally, your your redness is not discussed. Go ahead. I, I could Let's be wrong. It, redness? What, what, I mean, what Dan, is that supposed to mean? Dan Jeez. literally called him a ginger hmm. on Thursday. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's all pick something that someone else in the room should be insecure about and point it out. Hmm. Yeah. Tony's mustache. Oh, oh wow. I was wow. just wow. about this game. Oh, <laughs> Billy's actually, empty room. Two footed. Yeah, that's a good one. Billy, your room's kind of creepy. I don't like it. Oh, no. The poll, by the way, that you put on your Instagram revealed what now? You had a poll on your Instagram? Yep. She put a poll on her Instagram about my mustache. Oh, you and were what talking was, to me. Yeah, who else wow. would I be talking to? I, I, no I kind of like her. I thought, thought you were talking to Billy. Yeah, no, we I'm talking to you. Room. And it was about 68% yes. And I was one of the 68. 
I like okay. the mustache. So then why did you give me a low blow about me being insecure mm. about my own facial hair? It was, the, yeah. it was the first thing I could think of that wasn't really a burn that might like right. be Touché. funny, to be honest. Uh-huh. Okay. Because mm. we were all thinking. Tony also has the confidence to carry an yes, insult. I think exactly. he'll, he'll, you'll, you'll be just fine. You'll go yeah. home and you'll be like, "Yeah, I actually just forgot about it today." Yeah. yeah, when he's around people, but when he's alone, mm. oh, you have me as a closet. So Roy, so Roy like you think there's a person? deep side of Tony? We right. goes home. He, oh, like, absolutely. I'm sure there's a deeper mm. side to Tony that we don't know about. Wow. Yeah, he will never show. Mm. 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 All right, Roy. Now you have to say something mean about Jessica. Wait, I feel like no, we I just refuse to do we that. just hit on HR something. Violation. There is some. There's nobody. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna do a noise, and you guys are gonna say who amongst us carries the most judgment when they do it. Hmm. It's Billy. Nobody can ah. hmm, like Billy. Whenever you say something and it's followed by a Billy. What do you mean? Hmm. Yeah, like that there- too. The what do you mean thing. <laughs> When Billy, if you, if, like, it's always something I say. Like, if I'm saying something and then all of a sudden you just hear, hmm. Oh, he does it to me a it lot, too, such Cody. A, it is such, like, hmm. I, he's basically I, in saying, Billy's defense, he's saying you. Billy's, In Billy's defense, I don't think it is always a judgment. Hmm. As a matter of fact, I'd say it is rarely a judgment. Uh, For me, it is mostly a conversation carrying. Hmm. Yeah. It's, like, so it's, it's like, let's, let's keep Chris. this thing rolling, so I'm going to say, hmm. Yeah, it's like Chris Cody at meetings when there's like just an awkward silence and it seems like it's going to stop. It's like, I know I'll just throw in like a hmm or like a hmm, just a sound. I feel like the first five months of meetings, I just could not. Now now I'll just like leave myself on mute. I'll be like, someone else is doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not saying anything. (laughs) (laughs) And you guys will all just like, you guys start laughing at me because it's like Chris hates this. So good. It's the best. (laughs) Mystery Crate, huh? Oh, there it is. All right. So what do we have on tap for Mystery Crate this week? We have an interview that you did, Chris Whittingham. Tell us about yes. it. Yes. All right. So we have an, uh, an author. His name is Simon Cooper. Wrote a great book about Messi and Barcelona. And it came out at exactly the right time. It's publishing this week. A week ago, he left from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain. And we talk about all the difficulties with Messi and Barcelona. And actually, how he's kind of low-key, like a little bit of a Machiavellian LeBron figure. Here's Simon Cooper with Mike and myself on Mystery Crate. Hmm. <laughs> Remarkable timing on this book. Did you kind of know that D-Day for Messi and Barcelona was going to be coming here? No. I mean, when I woke up on Thursday morning and when Messi woke up separately on Thursday morning, we both thought he's going to sign a new contract with Barcelona today. And it had all been set up. uh, 50% of his previous salary, still world's best paid player. And on Thursday, the first extracts of my book appeared in my newspaper, the Financial Times, and a couple of hours later, FC Barcelona tells Messi's representatives, actually, sorry, we can't even offer you a reduced contract. There's no money at all. We're not allowed to offer you any sort of contract. Did I expect this when I began the book a couple of years ago? When I began researching, I could see there were kind of cracks in the ceiling of FC Barcelona. But, you know, by April 2019, when I just begun, they'd beaten Liverpool 3-0 at home, looked like they were going to be in the Champions League final, probably win it. They won the Spanish League around the end of April. It all looked pretty good. You would have said they were the best team in the world. So this did happen quite suddenly. So as I was writing, I went from writing the story of greatness to writing the story of rise and fall. And so there's been so much conversation about how Barcelona got this all wrong, how they ended up in this predicament. How much of it is based on the pandemic and how much of it is based on the mismanagement that you chronicle in this book? I think the pandemic was the final blow. I mean, look, you know, every football club in the world had the pandemic. And only FC Barcelona has been in financial meltdown with a debt of about $1.4 billion. So it's not just the pandemic. What two things were going on in the five years before. One is they kept buying players 
for too much money to wrong players. So they spent over a billion dollars in five years from 2014, more than any other soccer club. And they ended up with this aging squad with no resale value. And that's, you know, largely President Bartomeu, the previous president, is doing. And the other thing is that Messi's dad, Jorge, came to the club all the time saying, you know, my son could leave this summer. He has a rolling contract, could leave for free unless you up his wages again. And so Bartomeu kept saying, sure, we'll give him a wage rise. Why not? We have the highest revenues in the whole world of sport. And so Messi's salary trebled from 2014 to 2020. And then all the other players want wage rises too. Salaries out of control, transfers out of control. This is what you get. Well, I was actually just about to ask you because there are players that don't even make a contribution to Barca. Uh, there are some players right now that aren't even legally allowed to make a contribution to Barca because they can't be registered. But the wages over there are so much higher in comparison to even other elite soccer clubs. Why is that? Is it punitive tax laws? Is it a combination of things for Barcelona? Yeah, I mean, by the time the pandemic broke out, Barcelona have approximately the highest wage bill in any team sport, of any club in team sport in the world. So higher than NBA teams, higher than any other soccer team. Why is that? I think it's mostly the Messi effect. And then that Spanish generation, the great Spanish generation that came through the Masia with him, players like Pique, Busquets, who stayed on, uh, Jordi Alba. So you have this old team. Everyone gets waves, rise every year. Messi, first of all. Messi's salary was became ridiculous, even though he's Messi. By the end, the last four years, he was earning about $150 million a year, which is probably more than double any other soccer player in the world is getting in salary. And so there you have to say, look, we understand that they want to keep Messi and you want to keep Messi happy. The whole club has been built around keeping Messi happy. But that you let out, get out of control. Karl-Heinz Rummenigge of Bayern Munich said he burst out laughing when he saw Messi's salary. We've seen a lot of great players and managers leave La Liga recently, some of them embroiled in tax controversies, surely. But they're obviously paying big-time wage bills. What's going on within Spain that now you're seeing some players of a, the highest quality not want to play there as the destination it once was? I mean, Spain is... A smaller country than France, Italy, Germany, England. It's a poorer country than those four. And so more or less for the first time since the 1950s, Spain was the dominant league. Early 2000s, you get Messi, you get Cristiano, and then you get this unprecedentedly great Spanish generation that wins the World Cup. And they're playing almost all of them for Barcelona and Real Madrid. So these become the two biggest clubs in the world because of this confluence of these great players. But this is not going to, this couldn't last. In the end, the bigger, richer countries are going to pull ahead. So if you look at the history of soccer, England, Italy, Germany, Spain, they've all had their time at the top. Spain's time couldn't last. It's ending now. And, you know, without Messi, without Ronaldo, the sponsorship income, the TV income of those clubs is going to drop. You can't keep buying the world's best players anymore. You mentioned how Lionel Messi kept escalating his salary higher and higher, and I think there are Jorge some... Messi did that. Well, well, Jorge, okay, his the, the, the Messi camp, as it were. So, how much responsibility do you think he has in the current state of Barcelona? And given you know you work for the Financial Times, is paying Lionel Messi all that money worth it to Barcelona? I mean, two things. One is I don't actually give him much responsibility because I mean a lot of my book is trying to understand this little man who I think none of us had thought that hard about before as a figure off the field. And if you're the kid who from age 13 is carrying his family's fortune on your back, you know, essentially Messi comes to Barcelona, is paid $140,000 a year or so as a 13-year-old. That is the family income. They're all brought over. 
Then the family structure inverts and the family says to the kid, you just play soccer, we'll take care of the rest. We'll do everything else. So Messi didn't know how much he earned. Messi didn't know that he was dodging taxes. His dad, who thinks he's a brilliant businessman, was arranging all that. It wasn't Messi going to Barcelona asking for more money. Messi didn't think about that stuff. So I would attribute a lot of that uh, guilt to Jorge Messi, not to Leo. The other thing, I mean, your other question was um, how much, it, was he worth all that money? In the end, no. It got out of hand. It spiraled out of control. But look, I completely understand that Barcelona had this messy strategy for 15 years of let's keep the kid happy. Whatever he wants, any coach he wants appointed, any player he wants sold, we will do our best. So Zlatan Ibrahimovic goes because Messi doesn't want a massive Swede blocking his runs into the middle. Uh, uh, Tato Martinez becomes coach. And Tato Martino becomes coach because, you know, he's a fellow Argentine. The Messi family likes him. So... I understand that Barcelona did all that and we're all now saying, oh, it's, you know, gone disastrously wrong and it has. But remember, it went brilliantly right for 15 years before it went wrong. And you also chronicle the Mesque Un Club uh, slogan that they have, which is more than just a club, more than just a football team. And I and they did have a mentality that was established by the Cruyffs and, and you chronicle his massive influence over the club. But... In some respects, Barcelona is Messi. Messi is Barcelona. We know that Messi will carry on and have big success, presumably at Paris Saint-Germain, at the very least from a commercial point of view. Barcelona, where do they go from here? What are they now that they are a Messi-less club and really a club that doesn't have a top-tier manager, that doesn't have top-tier players, that is not really the commercial draw that it once was? Well, when I started researching the book in 2019, I started interviewing, among other people, executives at the club. And they understood that after Messi, things were going to be different. Things were going to be hard. And a couple of people said to me, after Messi, Barcelona might become Manchester United after Alex Ferguson. So we don't win prizes anymore, but we're still a giant club, global fan base, top three clubs for revenues. We'll cope. And that's the benign scenario, which may happen. But I think the dark scenario, which may not quite, but something like that might happen, is Leeds United 20 years ago. Leeds overspend. Uh, buy players they can't afford. They have to sell everyone at cut price. Leeds actually get relegated, have a disastrous 20 years. And I don't think it's going to be that bad for Barcelona just because they're a bigger entity. But I think there are some very dark years coming. PSG is more well positioned to handle these wage bills and they got hefty ones over there but they're also not owned by a community they're they're backed by oil money they have deep pockets they can do this the 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 business that is headed Paris's way, and I've already already seen some of these articles being written as the business of Messi, what he brings to your club. Exactly how much money is this going to bring to a club like PSG? Not enough, but it doesn't matter in a sense, because as you say, the owners have very deep pockets. The owners, the only ruling family of Qatar, which essentially owns Paris Saint-Germain, they're multi-billionaires. They have about 10% of the world's oil and gas. They don't care about losing a few hundred million on buying the world's best footballer that's fine for them their only problem is getting uefa to accept the losses they're making so this year paris are projected to lose about 250 to 300 million i think even before messi came why are they allowed to sign him because after the pandemic all football clubs were loss making because they hadn't had any spectators for a year and a half so uefa said you know we're going to relax the rules a bit so you can lose a lot of money this year but in the next three or four years try and make up your losses so that's why PSG are able to buy, well, sign this player. Now you ask, you know, how does it add up financially? Well, 
I reckon that the gross salary they're going to have to pay him because French taxes are high and the signing bonus, it's going to be over $200 million that they're going to pay into Messi's pocket to have him for two years. So that's equivalent to, you know, close to the highest transfer fee in the history of soccer, even though they're not paying an actual transfer fee. Yes, they will make a lot of money in, you know, number 30 Messi shirts. Yes, French soccer is going to pull in, you know, bigger TV deals, and sponsorship deals for PSG. It probably won't make up the 200 million, but the Qataris don't care. They're not in this to make money. And and also is kind of the hood ornament for their promotion of the World Cup in 2022 in a little more than a year's time. I imagine the marketing on that will be helpful as well. Um, but I, I kind of want to get back to You mentioned how you spent time researching Lionel Messi. A lot of people have attempted to get more at the core of a guy who's just a bit guarded publicly. What more did you learn about him? What makes him tick? Some of the details that, you know, a reader of this book might find out. Well, when I began on the book, I thought, you know, he's not a very interesting guy. There isn't much to say there. He's, he's the best footballer, but off the field, not much to say. Doesn't have a personality. And that was dumb. That was wrong. And I found out quite quickly because I talked to dozens of people inside Barcelona, not necessarily only the famous people, but also psychologists and assistant coaches and stuff. And everyone in the club is afraid of Messi. Messi is the boss more than anyone else. If Messi wants something, everyone jumps to it. It happens. When Messi speaks in the changing room, everyone shuts up. He doesn't care about projecting his personality to us, but inside the club, he wants his wishes, you know, done. He thinks he doesn't care about coaches. He thinks coaches are overrated, waste of space, but he wants the coach to do what he wants to do. And he wants to play with the best players. And so Messi is the most significant power broker inside that club. How does he live? I mean, I, I went to his house. You know, he's kind of welded two mansions together. It looks like a kind of Californian millionaire's suburb. So it's wealthy, but not kind of spectacular, super rich. Uh, on this hill, it's not even that near the sea in a small town. He goes to local restaurants with his wife and kids, and they sit in a, you know, a kind of side room and nobody bothers them. Drives his kids to the English language school down the road. And it's a very quiet life. And every three days, you know, he commutes over the highway to the company, plays brilliantly, wins the game, commutes back at midnight, empty highway, quiet life. And I think it's not so he was crying when he left. It's not so much love of club. I don't believe almost any soccer player loves their club. I think he had a perfect, he had a really good life. He was playing in this brilliant football team. He was, uh, in the football field he wanted to be, and he had the family life that he wanted. He's an introvert. He doesn't have many friends. He lives in this kind of extended family. And his kids, when he told them last year that he wanted to leave the club, the wife and the three sons burst out crying. And that was a big shock to him. That's, I think, also why he wanted to stay this year. Later in his career, it looks like there's going to be more change. This is a, a two-year deal, I believe, with a third-year option. Many people here in MLS, through reporting that our show is done, they feel pretty confident that at the end of that two years at PSG, after the World Cup, he's looking to make a move. This is a person that, while he had a quiet life, he did seem to enjoy the power and everyone lived in fear over there. How is it going to work out for him, if, potentially, if he comes to MLS? Yeah, I'm skeptical that he's going to come to MLS any time, say, in two years' time. I mean, maybe down the road. I think in two years' time, Messi... He's a winner. I don't think he'd be happy playing for Miami and you know playing with players who are not up to that level. He wants to play with Neymar and Mbappe. 
And I could also see in two years' time, if Barcelona get their show a little bit on the road again by then, that he comes back at 36, 37 and plays a couple of encore seasons at a much lower salary. Um, I think that's equally plausible as going to MLS. I, I find the the dynamics that you explained of him working and operating within that club to be fascinating because it, it kind of reminds of what LeBron James uh, and how and how he operates within basketball, the kind of devaluing of coaches and just wanting to play with the best players. But I think LeBron is slightly more public about it. Is is Messi guarded about how he is publicly and then kind of privately knows how to work internal politics and, and use his leverage to his advantage? Look, I don't know basketball well, but I've seen LeBron James, and he's much more articulate than Messi. He's much better with words. And he um, has thought about life beyond basketball in a way that I don't think Messi particularly has. So Messi was a guy who didn't speak. As a kid, when he was first at Barcelona, his, some of his teammates thought he was mute. And suddenly during the game of PlayStation, he began to talk and they thought, well, he can talk. But he seemed, you know, at 16, he seemed like an 11-year-old. He, he sort of tried to read one book in his life, biography of Maradona, and he hadn't managed to read it. He, he was sort of developmentally very limited. And I think over the years, he learned, look, I carry this team on my back. I'm responsible for victory. So he has enormous stress because an, a normal player has to perform has to do his job. Messi has to win the game for the team if things are not going well. Not if you're, you know, beating Elche 4-0, but in the difficult games when Barcelona are not performing, he has to win it. So that's enormous stress. He vomits in the changing room often before games from stress. So he began to feel, you know, Barcelona lets me make the decisions and I really want the players and the coaches and the tactics that I want. And so it's not that he's a guy who's comfortable with words, who's comfortable discussing and arguing and explaining, but he sure as heck knows who he wants playing in the team with him and how. Now, I'm not trying to make him out to be a villain, but particularly Real Madrid fans that Mike and I know kind of are think that Messi has actually, towards the end, had a bad effect on Barcelona. How much of these signings that ended up bankrupting the club, not bankrupting, but put them, putting him in a dire financial position. Like Griezmann and Dembele and all these guys were Messi saying, go and get them, go and get them, pay no. me more money. And then at the end, they don't have anything left to give him. I, I think on the transfers, he let them be for a long time. The one thing he got really involved in, I mean, there, there are two moments where transfers, he was very influential. One is he indicates to Guardiola in very few words, look, I cut in from the right. I go to the center. And when I arrive in the center, I do not want this massive Swede standing in my way screaming for the ball. And so Guardiola then has to go to Ibrahimovic and, Ibrahimovic and say, you know, it was last time we signed you for 50 million a few weeks ago. You scored in all your first six league games, but you're on the bench. And Ibrahimovic is shocked. But that's messy. You know, he didn't want that. He's out. And the other moment where he intervenes and transfers is Neymar leaves in 2017. Because Neymar wants to be Messi, he wants to be the main man, and he thinks I can be the main man at Paris. And Messi is horrified because Neymar, the young Neymar who runs onto his passes, that's the ideal partner. And Messi plus Neymar is sort of the best combination, well, after Messi, Xavi, and Iniesta in modern football. And so Messi is aghast. And in 2019, after they lose to Liverpool, he, you know, Neymar indicates he's fed up in Paris and Messi starts to put pressure on the club and says, you've got to bring Neymar back. And Paris, uh, sorry, Barcelona take a look at Neymar. He's costing over $200 million. He's 27 by that point. He's often injured. 
party lifestyle and their money is running out partly because they're giving so much to Messi. So they spend the summer of 2019 pretending to sign Neymar so they can go back to Messi at the end of summer and say, look, you know, Leo, we did our best, but we couldn't get him. So we got Griezmann instead. And Messi was not happy about that whole thing. I mean, he doesn't get involved in, you know, negotiating transfers, but he, he said publicly and privately, you have to get Neymar. And he wasn't happy. And Griezmann had let him down the year before when he was going to come to Barca, Messi was behind it. And then the last moment Griezmann pulled out, Messi felt humiliated. So that didn't get off to a great start. And Griezmann, by the time he arrives, he's 28. He costs $150 million, something like that. Way too much for a 28-year-old. So uh, Coutinho Dembele, that was Barcelona's own doing. Messi did not tell them to get those guys. You know, Messi doesn't kind of scout the transfer universe. Um, he doesn't. He wants them to do that job. But when they do it wrong, he gets really angry. Simon Cooper, the book is The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. Simon Cooper, the Financial Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Excellent stuff. Thank you, sir. That was brilliant. Thank you. Okay. Well done, guys. Thanks very much. The playoffs have started in basketball and hockey, and there's really only one way that I can enjoy it. For me, drinking Miller Lite while the action is going on makes the game that much more exciting and that much more delicious. A lot has changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. So what do you look for in a light beer? Great taste or less filling? For me, it's great taste and less filling. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com crate, C-R-A-T-E. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Billy, do you use your hmm in other places outside of the show, like in your personal life? Like when your wife says something, you go, hmm. 
it's going to sound weird, but maybe not if I'm sitting in an empty room. I don't do much interacting with people outside of work. No, no, like I, I, mean, have- I mean, using <laughs> that in your personal hmm. life, right? Like if, yeah. you, if your wife is saying something, you're like, hmm, like do you use the hmm with her? Like, uh, like Peepo, don't you have a cousin named Peepo? Like when you're around him, if he says a bunch of crazy shit, will you just be like, hmm? No, sometimes I'll say, I'll just say, hmm. Yeah, I mean, the hmm, honestly, is more so like a group setting thing, I think, okay. right? Like, so you're not using someone else has to hear wife. the hmm for it to really be effective. Right. If not, I'm just like saying hmm to myself, like, hmm. Do you ever use hmm in written form? What would be, what would be the written form of hmm? H-M-M, right? Yeah. No, I I'm obviously, but I mean like 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 the the jab to keep comfort. Like I feel like if you just write a one word text that is the word interesting, that's your way of saying hmm in text. Ah, yeah. I think I've texted hmm in a thing, but I was thinking when you asked the question more so on email, and now I'm kind of taking it like as a dare to use hmm in an email <laughs> with someone, and I'm trying to figure out what email I can kind of get away with doing it because I try to do that. So I don't know if you guys are like me, but I try to sometimes like see like little things that I can do to get away with things just to kind of like make myself laugh that like no one will know. And it's not like making fun of anyone. Like we've talked about this before, sure, like then. every single meeting that we've had with Gary, I've not said, see you Gary at the end. Cause I'm like, I don't want it to be rude, but like it's, it's a perfect <laughs> use of see you Gary right at the end of a yeah. meeting, but I've never done it. Cause I don't want it to be like viewed as like disrespectful or like I'm joking. Uh, but yeah, now I, I want to kind of challenge myself to use hmm in an email. How do you guys spell mm-hmm? M- That's always a tough M- one. M-H-M-M. Yeah, there's got to be a double M. It's not H-M and then M-M-M? Well, that's hmm. That's not saying No, there's a space between H-M and then M-M-M. It's the first M. Because I've often wanted to text that to somebody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's tough to spell. Mm. You know the one that's hard for me is G's Louise. I'm not 100 percent sure how to Ooh. spell the G's and G's Louise. G E E Z. No, I, I go yeah. J. J. That's the thing. I go G. J. Yeah, G's. G's. This is like J I F and G uh, G I F with yeah. the GIFs. Yeah. GIF. But I say G's with a J. Um. I just do voice memos now. Most of you have been recipients of my voice memos. You don't have to worry really? about spelling things on a voice memo, Billy. Not mm-hmm. you. Why is that? Hmm. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, me either. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Voice memos—they're just voicemails of the to- of the 2020s. Yeah. I mean, people hate voicemails. We 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 basically have gotten rid of voicemails from our society, and now we just decided, well, let, what if if we text them to each other? That makes it different rather than it coming at the end of a missed phone call. They're voicemails. But so much better, Woody. Hmm. They just are. It's I don't know. Like they're short. As a matter of fact, I can I, hear I someone's inflection I, and. I don't know. It's more personal. Wow. I think the voicemail is now underrated. And here's why. Because the voicemail now comes with a transcription. Before, when we were phasing the voicemail out of our society, it was just this thing that you had to listen to. Now on the iPhone, you can open up the voicemail and it gives you a transcription, if anything, more convenient than the voice memo. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't even want to listen to it based on on the transcription, you're like, yeah, I don't need this one. Then sometimes I'm looking, I'm like, what the hell does this say? None of this makes any sense. And it's because yeah. it's like a robo dial thing and it catches like halfway through. And I'm like, I'm curious now. All also, it says is your car's warranty. That's the only text that you can figure you out. You know, car warranties and student loans. If anyone were to ever call me with a legitimate offer on like student loans or car warranty, I would have no idea if it was true because yeah. I just assume it's always a scam and none of it's real. Also, and this, I, I don't know if I should be saying this aloud, but. I got called the other day, uh, and I rarely pick up calls if I don't have it saved. I got called the other day 
by what I believe was like a police union or like a like a troopers union or something like that, right? And, and I picked it up because I didn't know. And I'm going through and they're like asking for like donations or whatever. And I'm like, okay, like, yeah, like send me, send me the, send me the stuff in the mail. And then they're like, well, you know, we could just do it over the phone right now. Like if you want to pledge like this amount or that amount, and then we can send you the stuff. And then after a little bit, I'm like, I don't know how to end this. So I just hung up. And now every time I drive, I'm wondering if this has gone like through like the police circles or group texts and they're just looking for me to get me for hanging up on a fellow officer the florida highway patrol is out to get you now possibly there's a there's a group chat where they go hey if you see this billy guy he 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 hung up 80 percent of the way through a donation call well that's the thing is i'm wondering if that's something that happens right mm -hmm. like and the next time i get a ticket i feel like the way that i start is like listen i'm sorry about that call Back in August, I just I had a lot going on. I didn't feel comfortable giving you my credit card information over the uh, over the phone. And they're gonna be like, "What the hell are you talking about? Like well, your your brake light is out or something?" Well, you remember, know? Billy, you have the right to remain silent. So I suggest you don't. Uh, yeah, that's good. That good advice, mm -hmm. there, Roy. Yeah. Which which one of you guys do you think is most likely to be able to talk though. your way out of a ticket? Witty. To bring this full circle, <laughs> I have always I often get out of tickets, and I've often attributed it to my red hair. I never get out of tickets. How is that? Because I think I've never gotten out of a ticket either. I don't think I my track record of getting pulled over for speeding and then just like letting me off of the warning is insanely high. And I've just and, and everyone I always say this to looks at me like you guys are. And there's no reason. I mean, I'm always very like apologetic, but I don't know. I just I think maybe I don't know. I've always but why just do you thought, correlate it to your hair? Roy, Roy, do you have access to the white guy sound? I feel like you I was find just going to say that. Like, you know, I'm not the only white person. Like, yeah, you know. but why do you say red hair? Because that's because I have red hair. Hmm. If Roy had red hair, I don't know that he'd be getting out of tickets still. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, we don't know that. I once tried to use a radio show to get out of a ticket. It didn't what? Work. No, you did not. That I seems did. above you. What did you, you. say? Uh, I said that it was I got a ticket. It was like 249. And I said I had a show at 3 p.m. And I didn't at a show at 4 p.m., but I was just you and mindedly driving too fast. And I said, I have a show at 3 p.m. on 790, the ticket. And mm. the officer was like, he, he, he went back. He looked at my license. He came back. He goes, don't try and pull that shit. It's not going to work. Well, now you can add the, fact <laughs> That's that you're awesome. the TV voice for into Miami now. Yeah. You can pull that out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can continue to try and drop my bonafide. Well, I've, I'm now scared off. Of I'm not I'm not doing that again. That was embarrassing. Mm. Baron mm. Davis, huh? BD. Here he is on Mystery Crate. Baron is directing his first feature film. He's always been interested in documentaries and television shows and acting. He has a creative side. I don't know where that came from, but the feature film is Domino Battle of the Bones. And I'm interested in knowing a whole lot of things about Baron and his past. So let's start with Los Angeles, growing up in the South Central area, how much were you exposed to the arts? Where did your interest in the arts come from, the creative side? Being where I grew up, either you pay attention to your surroundings or you try and turn it, you know, negatives into positives. So I would say it just came from my friends, like growing up as a kid, bagging. But, you know, when I was young, I, I, I read a lot. And so I think reading really just kind of like got my imagination going in basketball. You know, if it wasn't for my imagination in basketball, 
kind of never like figured out a way to get out. And so growing up in South Central in that day and time, it was really tough because you saw a lot of bad things and it was just like you had to use your imagination, you know, dreams and wishes to like see yourself in another capacity. Were you interested in the arts the same way you were in basketball or was basketball the first love? Basketball was always first love. I say, you know, my just off the court passion was that because, you know, you could like sit in front of a TV and numb yourself. For me, it was like a numbing thing, escaping all the things that was happening that night growing up in South Central. You saw and felt the danger around you. It wasn't something that was lost on you. You weren't oblivious because you were a kid. It was all something that you very much felt. I mean, it was there. It was, you know, in our face every day. Life you grow up in, right? Gangs, drugs, no way out, no real resources, no real role models. That was a wake up every day, go to sleep every night type of thing, right? So you always had to kind of stay alert, you know, keep your eyes peeled. That's why I did the Bloods and Cribs documentary, right? Because I wanted people to get a, a chance to see both sides, both perspectives, Kind of growing up in that neighborhood, you know, for me, it was just, it's an everyday thing, just living in the devil's pit, right? Not really seeing a lot of opportunity, just kind of floating down the streets. You use the verb numb. I can imagine you looking for laughter. I can imagine you sort of getting out of situations through laughter. Were you a tough kid? Uh, You know, tough as I need to be, (laughs) but more so just like, I was a person that brought good energy, got people to play basketball, you know, always organizing games, you know, just kind of like making sure that we were laughing. I wanted to be something different than somebody that people fear. I wanted them to be somebody that they let their guard down. So, you know, ever since I was a kid, that was kind of like my responsibility to the neighborhood. So, you know, the toughest of the toughest, come on, man, let's go play some basketball. You have to, you know, you have to figure out a way to get them to laugh or to get them to let their guard down. What did you learn about gang life that you didn't know through the documentaries? Uh, Just the history, you know, I would say, you know, kind of what came before what I saw and what came before what I knew, just kind of like the the reason why the organization um, and the people. Uh, So I think it just kind of like broadened my eyes that, you know, there's there's history behind the history. Um, and South Central was a, was a place where, you know, kind of, it was a good place. You know, we had jazz. We had all these, you know, um, prospering neighborhoods. And, you know, through crack, through drugs, through gangs, you know, those things kind of disseminated. So, you know, I, I, I learned a lot. I think the history of it is what, uh, is what really I caught on to. How good have you become at navigating the world of Hollywood? Uh, I'm not that good yet. I'm learning it. You know, I'm just taking my time. You know, this Domino movie was great because it kind of gave me the first opportunity to direct. And now, like, I know that's what I want to do. Now it's like, I'm in. You know, like, I I can put my bid in. I can pick the next project. I can put my focus into it and make it happen. What are the mistakes that you have made in Hollywood? I would say not being patient, patient with ideas, development, and just kind of like working within the system, I would say. 
You say that you realized recently that you wanted to be a director. Were you on a different path before deciding, okay, director is what I want to do? No, I just knew, like, you know, I like hosting and I like acting. So I kind of, like, was just falling into more so that the analyst work. Shout out to TNT because they gave me a chance to, like, direct some commercials with Mountain Dew. Shout out to Mountain Dew. And I did some stuff with the rookie. So it was just kind of like everybody was just believing in me, dude. Like from Chris Weber to Shaq, you know, just all, all my homeboys. They was just like, yo, bro, you the director, like Matt, Stack, you know, uh, Al Harrington. You know, all them dudes, it, it, it was almost like being on the team. It was so much support because, like, when I'm around them, they be like, yo, BD, he the director. He know the movies, you know. And so it just kind of gave me confidence to kind of, keep working, knowing that, like, uh, I can't wait till my time come, you know? You mentioned being supported by some of your peers. Where did you play where you felt most supported? Charlotte, when I was with the Hornets, that was probably, like, a good starting point. After that, it was pretty much, like, topsy-turvy. I say the Warrior team, like, we all felt like, you know, we were on our last leg or going to be castaways. And so we supported each other. We believed in our coaches and our coaching staff and, and a few people. But, you know, I would say Charlotte when I first came into the league is where I felt like, you know, I could just come in, be a basketball player and just worry about basketball. You came in as the third overall pick. You come out of Los Angeles, out of the South Central area. How much did your life change upon getting to the league? A lot. You're in a different weight class. You know, you're in a different weight class basketball-wise. You're around adults. You're around grown men. You're a working adult, and you have to look at it that way. What weren't you ready for? I wasn't ready for all the travel, man. That travel was, like, tearing me up. And one, just kind of playing in the different arenas every night. It was fun, but it was just like you really had not felt it, you know? And then being a rookie, not playing that much, that was uh, equally frustrating, like coming off the bench my rookie year. It was work. You had to be a professional. You thought it was, it had always been played to that point, or largely, right? Maybe not always. Uh, no, even in college, you got to be professional, I think. Once you choose your path, you choose to make a lot of sacrifices in your life, and so basketball becomes number one. As long as you're in the gym, Working on your game, showing up for practice on time. I mean, that is, to me, a level of professionalism. Tell me about the Castaway Warriors, because they produced uh, one of the greatest upsets that we have seen in the playoffs, and it just looked like that team was a lot of fun. I know we've talked to you about it before, but from afar, it looked like you guys really enjoyed everything that you were doing together. Yeah, we did. We were castaways. We were a bunch of people that needed a second chance to just play basketball and play basketball the way we wanted to. We were uh, underestimated or whatnot, undervalued. And I think that's what bonded us together was the fact that, you know, small ball for us was an advantage because we had a lot of guys who were good defenders. And, you know, when you play small ball, like you have to have guys who are committed defensive players and people used to say, man, you know, I just run up and down the court and play healthy skelter. Well, that wasn't the case. Like we probably doubled the deflections of any team, steals, blocks, 
like all those things and being undersized, you know, allowed us to be a little bit more scrappier and quicker to the ball. So we kind of prided ourselves on the ability to like lock down, right, or apply pressure. And, you know, having Nelly there to give us that freedom to where everybody knew where they were supposed to go and where they could go and where they should go. We were just insane. Steven Jackson, as tough as he seemed. And more. Steven Jackson was like, that was Captain Jack. He was like the captain of fun, hanging out. There was never a time where anybody beefed. There was never a time where anybody got into a fight or, you know, argument. I mean, we may argue, but it was more so like four dudes yelling at one dude to say, come on, man, like, what the f*** is wrong with you? You know what I mean? We all kind of like just shared this responsibility. We enjoy coming to practice, right? We enjoy coming to practice. We enjoy being in the locker room. And like nobody had this tough guy mentality, you know what I mean, around the team. Like we were just... We were all equally, like, crazy, you know what I mean, in our own right. And it was just like, once we got on the court, that was our armor. So we could take this tough guy mentality. We can take this scrappy underdog mentality, right? And we can take that to the court and use that to our advantage. Are there a lot of other spaces where you played and felt a word that you would describe as love? I would say in Charlotte, it was uh, it was business, but it was love. Everywhere else, it was sort of it was just more business. Even in Golden State, it was business. You know, it was like the love we have for for our team. Like even all my teammates, love all my teammates. But a lot of times, you know, like the business side of things, you don't get it. Like when I was young, I didn't I didn't understand why certain people got traded. You know, you break up the team team chemistry take me through that though when you say the other teams didn't quite feel like that it sounds like some of uh the joy what is this a therapy session man yes the joy get out of here (laughs) does it get diluted does the joy get diluted we can laugh and talk about the movie in a second but yes i want to talk about your career a little bit i know no it was cool it was um some people get traded You know, early in your career, you don't understand why people get traded. And later in your career, you start getting traded and you understand why. You know, in Golden State, they was like, when I got there, it was like dead, right? It was like dead as a doorknob. When I left, there was huge promise, right? But everything from the, like, winning a championship and taking it to the next level, it was never going to happen because it was a bunch of not good people, you know what I mean? Kind of running the show. And so at some point it was going to implode, especially with the type of guys we had. So I walked and, you know, I was like, all right, well, I'll go to the Clippers. Clippers was beyond dead and had all kind of like soap opera type shit, you know, so you didn't really have a chance to like be around anybody or grow with anybody because everybody was on a free agent contract. So it's just different. Like, but you love your teammates. You, you know, there's relationships that you have with certain teammates that, you know, you kind of like cherish brotherhood, you know, it's all in chemistry. Rarely do you find, you know, a squad or a team, you know, that can one, you know, put their ego to the side 
and just go play basketball. And so, that you know, that happened a few times in my career where I was on great teams or teams that we felt like we could win it because we had that. And, and that's what you play for, right? You play for that love, that respect of certain people and even opponents, you know, when they look at you and, and they have stories about you. So what were you trying to do with Domino Battle of the Bones? Man, I was trying to make a movie. You know, I was trying to make a low-budget movie. And for me, I wanted to act and direct a movie, pick influencers, actors, and, like, have this vision of, like, man, there's a way to, like, shoot movies like these and be funny, right? And also, like, have this model and this formula of, like, not always having to make expensive movies, making niche movies for a target audience in a genre, you know, for me was like something that I was really excited about with this Domino movie. And then like when it got greenlit, I was like, oh shit, like this, this is really happening, you know? How did it go about getting greenlit? Like take us through the process of making a passion project like that. A lady who I have executive produced a movie with, Lori Tanner, She came up to me and she was like, have you thought about directing? I was like, yeah. She was like, I want to finance your first movie. She was like, I, I, you know, I pride myself off of financing, you know, first time directors. So if you have a movie, let me know and then let's figure it out. I'd love to work with you. I believe that you would be a good director. And I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, I got a movie. You know, I had Domino. I had thought about that when I got hurt when I was with the Knicks. So when I got hurt with the Knicks, I couldn't really walk for like three months. So I was just sitting right and coming up with different movie ideas that I wanted to make. And uh, Domino was a movie that I wanted to make sort of in the Christopher Guest form, right? Because I had been watching a bunch of Christopher Guest movies because I couldn't get out the bed. And um, when I was writing Domino, I was I was really like keen on the characters and the people that I could depict, you know, just from like, my world as a kid growing up. Do you like writing? It's not my favorite, but I do. You know, it's hard. It's hard. You know, I get, I had a lot, a lot of help. You know, the writers on the project, they kind of brought it home. Uh, I like to kick the idea off, find the nugget, develop the characters, things like that, talk in their voice, you know, just kind of bring a lot of the color. How rare is that, the meeting that you're talking about where someone is like, hey, I like to finance first-time directors. You want to direct something? Like, that doesn't sound like it's very, very normal. Rare. <laughs> very rare. Shout out to Lori Tanner. Very rare for her to do this. And then to, like, make a small-budget movie, smaller than small-budget movie, and then to go to theaters and on all streaming platforms, right, where people can see it. It's like, man, this is... You know, it's kind of like a dream come true, man. This is one that I, um, I'm i going to remember. What's the feedback been through screenings and whatnot? Tremendous, I would say. For me, just kind of like all feedback is good feedback. I think, um, you know, some of the negative reviews are, you know, correctable mistakes. It's almost like basketball. It's like, you know, I take it as constructive criticism, but my friends like it. You know, people hit me up like, yo, man, I did not know this movie was going to be good. You know, I really like it. Or, you know, like people that I know, they'd be like, yo, I'm with it. That's all I want to hear. 
You're a pastor in the movie. Is he there? Can I talk to him? Is the pastor around? I heard that the, the, you're a pastor. No, nah, uh, nah, nah, the pastor. Uh, so he, he looked just like me. That's my cousin. Uh, he had he had his spot. I can invite you if you want to come to a, a a little service. I see him and I'm looking at him right now. I'm looking at <laughs> I'm looking at the pastor right now, and I would like to talk to the pastor real quick. I don't want to. I don't need a whole sermon. I just want to see if the pastor is there and if I could lure him out and uh, and so that we can promote Domino Battle of the Bones for the pastor. I'm sure that he would like God's help in having make you know making this a successful film. Amen to that, brother. <laughs> Hell of a sermon. We f***ed with you, Baron. Thank you for being on with us, sir. <laughs> Thank you, man. You know, y'all welcome to come to my church. Uh, Domino, Battle of the Bones. Watch me play the pastor. I'm janky, but I'm uh, I'm getting my life right, uh, and, I, and I'm in business with, with the Lord. So, you know, I, I would say support the movie, get anointed, you know what I mean? And come get a <laughs> come get a nice domino here. <laughs> Are you a corrupt pastor? Is the pastor is the pastor? Absolutely. What do you think? <laughs> I would say he's not corrupt. He's he's um he's a visionary. He's an entrepreneur. He's an entrepreneurial pastor. You know, he may shake you down, put him ties and offer. <laughs> See you later, Baron. All right, thanks, Dan. That'll do it for this week's edition of Mystery Crate. Be sure to check out all the other podcasts on the Levitard and Friends Podcast Network. Aaron Rodgers was on South Beach Sessions this week. Check that out. Chris Cody, what's on Cinephile? Kevin Costner this week. Oh. Ken Burns next week. We're really excited. Fired up for Cinephile here on the Levitard and Friends Network. Check out all the other podcasts as well. We will talk to you next week. Hmm. The playoffs have started in basketball and hockey, and there's really only one way that I can enjoy it. For me, drinking Miller Lite while the action is going on makes the game that much more exciting and that much more delicious. A lot has changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. So what do you look for in a light beer? Great taste or less filling? For me, it's great taste and less filling. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com crate, C-R-A-T-E. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.